Hello, and welcome to the Cannabis Corner. I am your host, Joshua Braff, and I'm here with my partner, farmer Adam Teitelbaum. Today, we have Isaac Roth, who is the head of cannabis marketing and sales at Enresco Laboratories in San Francisco. There is so much to discuss these days as far as the properties of cannabis. We're going to talk about what happens when you break down this flower and, and look at all these elements and which of these properties means the most in how they help alleviate certain illnesses. We're also going to talk about pesticides and funguses and bacteria, things that weigh in heavily as the country looks to make the purest of flour from cannabis as medicine, and also the difference between what might be happening with a bud that's for rec and for medicine. So lots to discuss. And I wanted to have you start, Isaac, and tell us a little bit. You're from Milburn, New Jersey. Farmer Adam and I are from South Orange, New Jersey, about a five-minute drive. We played you in high school and all that. Kind of interesting that you're out here in San Francisco and that we, we all came from that that particular spot. And also, New Jersey is an interesting story in the realm of cannabis as medicine in that it is sort of behind the ball. It's a progressive area, certainly, with Manhattan, but things have been held up, certainly, by the government, maybe in the realm of the backlash from 9-11. We can discuss all of that. Isaac, tell us how you came to Anresco Laboratories in San Francisco. Thanks, Josh. So as you mentioned, I kind of started out in Milburn, Short Hills area of New Jersey, uh, very close by to South Orange. I played tennis there all the time as a kid. Basically, I uh, graduated from Lehigh University, kind of figured, you know, I had had this side gig going on involving whiskey for a bit, but sort of realized, okay, I think it's time to get a real job. Had a brief stint in investment banking, and it just was not for me. I spent my days reading news articles about what was going on in Colorado and out here. And towards Christmas time, I pretty much decided, you know what, I think I'm just going to take the plunge and see how it goes. So moved out here, having never been to the West Coast before, ended up getting brief grow experience, a little bit of venture capital experience in the space, and then uh, ended up at Enresco Labs doing marketing for them. Um, they had just been getting into the cannabis space uh, since they're traditionally a food laboratory. With all the experience and expertise that they have, uh, I thought it was relatively smart and straightforward to basically say, hey, we, we should ramp this up and make this a main focal point of this company for years to come if we can get that going. In the interview, you said, hey, I have an idea for you guys who aren't studying cannabis. In other words, when, when did you broach to the Enresco people that you were interested in studying cannabis or was it in the job title when you arrived? I had basically just been scouring Craigslist, Indeed, and all the other job websites you could think of for anything that would pique my interest. Um, most of the things that you'd see out there, most of the positions were, uh, you know, bud tender, delivery guy, sales rep. So I kind of was drawn to the laboratory side uh, rather than the retail and sort of production side of things because I, I considered it at the time the most underrated of the aspects of the industry or the sides of the industry because, as you know, going into 2018, starting January 1st of next year, everything's going to have to be lab tested, which is both a huge pain point for the industry, but also a very, very important growing point for the industry. Because right now, the rec and medical markets are one market, one and the same. And if you go out there and sample any product from the shelf, you know, there's a good chance it's not 100% of what you would call clean product. And for folks that have autoimmune issues or any sort of life-threatening illnesses or that 
genuinely need this uh, plant product or plant products that are out there for medicine, it's really tough to go in and pick and choose what you're going to use and what you think will help you if you don't know that it's completely clean. Right. Um, and so I think that we're really entering probably, in my mind, at least the most important next step that this industry has, which is just flushing out all, I don't want to say bad product, but product that would otherwise affect people in negative ways rather than the way that we know the plant and its other manufactured forms can offer to a lot of people. It's a really, really therapeutic thing that we have here. And it's really, really paramount that we get this right in terms of having a true medical offering. Then it'll be really interesting next year because uh, I see labs being the biggest bottleneck. Most people that are using labs have used them a couple of times, maybe not had the best experience because the labs right now don't necessarily know exactly what they're doing. There's no real standards or methods that are solidified that everyone can use across the board for all sorts of cannabis types uh, in regards to products, simply because, you know, it's a Schedule One substance. The DEA doesn't allow research unless you're given a grant or the go-ahead. And so without the research and data points, how are you supposed to develop ways to surely test this stuff perfectly 100% of the time, every time. And even disregarding the testing side of things, without that research and data to draw from, how are you going to know what is going to help what ailment with concrete evidence? So you kind of have a two-sided thing happening here where the labs are going to be shoring up and getting better at what they're doing, which will inherently influence the market, and the market will just get better from that. So we'll see a big slowdown next year, I think. Uh, but once that slowdown sort of uh, speeds up a little bit, kind of like traffic in the Bay Area, then I think we'll start to see a really, really nice divergence between the medical and recreational markets, and those offerings will be awesome. So, Isaac, everything that you're talking about is referring to the California market. Have you and, and your company and the industry there in California looked at, for instance, testing, what's been happening with testing in Colorado? Because it's it's been going on here for, for some years, and it's uh, undergone quite a bit of some growing pains and some maturity in some places, some clarity where there has been lack of clarity. There's still a lot of people who don't really trust the testing here. Um, different labs have different reputations here in the state uh, as far as within the industry amongst dispensaries. Have you looked at what's been happening in other states such as Colorado? I've briefly read up on what's happened in Colorado and Oregon and Washington, even right now in Hawaii, where they're having a big holdup with labs. Right now, California is about to go through what all these states have gone through. Um, Hawaii is going through it right now. But um, as you mentioned, there were a lot of pain points and a lot of sort of growing pains in Colorado. And even now, I know that the testing labs aren't having the greatest success in Colorado. I know they're doing their job. But I know that um, in California, at least, and this might be true in Colorado, that you can send the same sample from a crop or from an extraction or from an edible batch to the three different labs, and you'll get three different results because they've got three different standard points or three different methods. That's correct. As a matter of fact, we've uh, taken a bit to get to a testing lab that we truly have trust and faith in. And the lab that we're using here in Colorado is run by a guy who's come from the pharmacology industry and hires only people who are trained by that industry. And he runs his lab at a much, much higher standard 
than what the state requires. And that's actually the big reason why we use his lab. So yes, um, depending on the labs. I mean, I remember there was a time where I was working for a, another dispensary and we had sent out samples of flour to them and I don't remember exactly what the test results were, but they said if we wanted to get higher test results that we could pay more money mm-hmm. for a different test. Now, I don't know why a different test would yield different results, but basically it was like a, you know, pay more and get higher THC and CBD ratios, et cetera, percentages. So there was some shadiness for a while. I know that that doesn't exist here anymore. That was in the in the early stages. There's problems as far as a lot of people truly trusting the results. Definitely. I know that that's uh, an issue that California has been seeing too, uh, sort of a pay-to-play system um, where you can effectively throw a little bit more money at a lab that's willing to do so, and they'll be happy to give you, you know, higher potency results. Because right now, um, a lot of consumers, a lot of end users, medicinal or recreational, are looking at those potency results thinking, okay, this can probably help me more than this other product because it's got a higher percentage of THC, CBD, CBG, CBN, CBC, you know, the whole gamut. Um, And, you know, bang for buck wise, this makes more sense for me, which is unfortunate because a lot of people are counting on this as medicine and having sort of false claims in regards to potency isn't the best way to go about things, even though it is a marketing tool and a big advantage as um, a producer and seller of something. California will be looking to really sure that up next year when there are standards in places for labs and auditing bodies and folks overseeing and really enforcing the labs doing the jobs they should be doing. Not to say that there aren't labs doing that. There's a lot of labs in the space doing a good job. But I think uh, this industry is ready out here in California to really uh, kick it into second gear and get things going the right way next year. You know, now that you you mentioned that about potency, and uh, it's actually a big problem that I have with the way that so many cannabis consumers uh, shop for their cannabis, which is by looking for that highest percentage THC number or what have you. I think a lot of people end up missing out on some strains that may test around 15, you know, 14, 15, 16 percent. That's great medicine. But yet people are looking at everything that's, you know, 25 into the 30s. And um, I I think that's a foolish way to shop. And it's just something that I wanted to mention to our listeners. And as a matter of fact, you know, I know, of course, for as a grower, I'll get accolades when, you know, I have strains that test in the 30 percentages. And that's exciting, but that's not the end-all, be-all. That's that particular strain. It doesn't, you know, necessarily make the effect of that any better medicine than something that tests lower. Some of it depends on the ratios. It depends on the terpenes and the entire cannabinoid profile. So I think that people should shop without just looking at that number. I wish uh, I'd see that happen. There are variables other than the THC number, but consumers are trying to get the best bang for their buck, whether it's medicinal or for rec. So what is it about a bud that comes in with a number like 15 that might still be appealing to the person? And how do, how do we get that information to them? It's not up there on the menu necessarily in the dispensary. Why? You know, it's basically indica, hybrid, sativa, and then the numbers of THC. Of course, we're in this hinge time where 
it sounds like the labs are all doing different kinds of work and maybe scurrying to get to a place where the legitimacy of their work can be seen and, and tested and, and realized. It's interesting you say it's foolish to take a look at those numbers, and then that's kind of how many people I know shop. What are your thoughts, Adam, on that? How else could we get knowledge on how to approach an individual strain with a lower THC number? The responsibility there is bared by the dispensary. The person who is helping the patient or customer at that, at the point of sale there, you know, who's exploring the different possibilities that day in the dispensary, uh, needs to be knowledgeable and be explaining these things. And they need to be the person educating and saying, you know, don't just look at that highest number. What is it that you're exactly looking for a strain? As a matter of fact, there's a strain that we stop growing at my dispensary that I, I love. I grow it at home called Pre-98 Bubba Kush and it tests between 14 and 15% and because customers are not really looking for that, we didn't end up keeping it in stock and growing it on the shelf at our place for fear of that. I love it and I know so many other people who do too and who could give a crap what that number says. So it's wherever you're getting your medicine from, they need to be educating at that point because most people don't take it upon themselves to do it otherwise. Well, that makes sense. Isaac, I wanted to talk about some of the negative things that can happen to a bud. It's in their best interest to find the flower and bud that is the best for them. Pesticides come up, funguses, bacteria. Can you sort of speak to some of the things that can happen to a bud when it's not taken care of appropriately? I would love to touch on what you guys actually just covered mm -hmm. really briefly before yeah, I dive sure. into that. Going back to sort of, you know, people or consumers really looking for highest potency and highest bang for buck. Um, I think what really needs to happen, as you mentioned, is there needs to be consumer education on a the entourage effect where terpenes and cannabinoids all work in cohesion to have a therapeutic effect rather than just highest THC, highest psychoactive compounds. That will end up helping a lot of people depending on their type of ailment or if they're a recreational user than what type of feeling that they're going for. It's kind of like looking at different whiskeys or different wines. You know, there's barrel-proof whiskeys that are super, super strong, but you might end up enjoying something that's, you know, only 50% alcohol because it has a really nice oaky vanilla char bouquet. That's um, a good analogy. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Similarly with wines, you know, you could go for a 16 or 18% alcohol wine because I'm sure there's wine out there that's that high, but a lot of people like wines in the 12 to 14% range because of that flavor profile, those terpenes they get, and just the enjoyment of that experience. And I think as we see the medical and recreational markets start to diverge here in California next year, I think uh, the medical market will become really, really educated very quickly about all of that, and they'll start to make their choices with a little bit more uh, information behind them. And the recreational market, I think, will follow suit soon thereafter in people realizing that THC is not necessarily the only thing you should be looking at. But back to what you asked, mm -hmm. uh, in regards to contaminants like pesticides, molds, uh, even heavy metals. So one thing that we're going to be seeing next year in California that you, Adam, have seen already in Colorado is that labs will be mandated to test for potency, pesticide residues, microbiological contaminants, and actually probably even heavy metals here in California. And right now, sort of the big topic pesticide is mycobutanil, otherwise known as Eagle 20. And that compound, when heated up past the point of decarboxylation, I'm pretty sure turns into cyanide, which is why it's very worrying for a lot of people to have this pesticide in their flower. Because if you're going to smoke it, then, you know, you really 
don't want to have that in there. So one thing that is a major issue in regards to that pesticide is that it's systemic. So if a mother plant, you know, gives off uh, seeds or you get some clones or some cuttings from that plant, and then you use it to grow those cuttings, those seeds, those clones, that pesticide will come from the mother and into those plants. So it's kind of like a mother giving birth to a baby when she has herpes or some other sort of disease that can be passed on. That's kind of how that pesticide works uh, with plants. Have you seen this problem? find its way to a user? I'm sure that it has. I can't really say. We don't do toxicology. I'm not a toxicologist or an expert by any means. I do know that there's a pretty decently high percentage of product out there right now within this state that does have mycobutanil in it because for years and years, you know, it's been a totally unsupervised, unregulated space where growers can spray whatever they want on their plants if they so choose to. And I know there's a lot of folks out there right now working on organic methods, working on natural methods working on ways to remedy issues that pesticides would otherwise take care of. But we will be seeing a pretty large shakeup of the industry next year when a lot of folks that either do or maybe even don't know that they have pesticides in their products will have to get tested and have to figure that out. Like I said, you know, we've had folks that come in and they bought a clone from either a well-known uh, dispensary that sells clones or they buy a clone from a buddy of theirs or they get seeds from someone they know and they go and they grow it and they bring in the buds to test and we test it and we say, hey, you know, we found 100 ppm, 100 parts per million of mycobutanil and or spiromesophen or pyrethrins and then they're like, wait, what's going on with that? I've never even seen a pesticide. Why is this the case? And then you kind of have to break the bad news you know, where where did you get this from? You know, what kind of water are you using? What kind of soil, if you're using soil, are you using? Because um, oftentimes soil is composted from agricultural areas or out here in California from vineyards where certain pesticides are allowed on the grapes or on the vegetables or on the fruits that aren't going to be allowed on cannabis because of inhalation versus ingestion. So a lot of these pesticides are actually considered safe to eat uh, or ingest, but smoking, we just don't have the data on because, you know, like I said, it's a Schedule One substance and research hasn't been allowed uh, to go on in regards to toxicology and the safety of these compounds. And we'll have more with our interview with Isaac Roth of Anresco Laboratories in San Francisco, California, in a future episode of The Cannabis Corner. Mary Jane's Medicinals produces some of the best quality medical cannabis-infused topical products on the market. The topical application of cannabis has shown to be very effective for pain management, healing of injuries, relaxation, and improving skin health and appearance. Carefully formulated using rich plant oils and healing herbs, every Mary Jane's Medicinal product works symbiotically with the incredible healing properties of cannabis to create the most therapeutic products we can to help your body heal itself. Try one of our salves, lip balms, bath salts, massage oils, lotions, or topical tinctures. Mary Jane's Medicinals. And now more with our interview with Alex Soria, a graduate of Oaksterdam University in Oakland, California, who is now living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where legality of cannabis as medicine is coming their way. Alex, how long do you think it's going to be until uh, cannabis as medicine is happening in Pennsylvania? It's still a long time until, you know, January, February, or March of 2018 when people will be able to access that in Pennsylvania. 
Are they letting people already apply, you know, for the card or whatever it is that people will have there? No, no, the health department's still working on that. They're working on guidelines. Um, They are at distributed permits, and uh, the dispensaries are actually starting to construct their businesses. So, yeah, that is under the works. Um, The people who will be distributing and growing, for the most part, all of them have their permits as is. Pretty soon here, I'm sure the first rows will start going up. So, Alex, is the state of Pennsylvania accepting applications for the medical marijuana program for potential patients to sign up? Not yet at the moment. I um, actually just talked to the state health department, and they're still working on, like, finalizing guidelines and things of that nature. Just given that it's a commonwealth, things tend to move a little bit more slowly in Pennsylvania. So uh, that could be something that hampers the uh, projected start date of early 2018. But it should be something that we should find out more about, given that it's almost fall. Yeah, we should find out more in the future here. Also, do you know, is there a cap on dispensaries, or is each uh, municipality or county allowed to govern how many they have, or if they want to ban dispensaries altogether? How does that work? So they actually broke Pennsylvania up into six different zones. Philadelphia has its own zone. Pittsburgh's under the southwest zone. The capital, Harrisburg, has its own zone called the Central Zone. And then Erie, which is in northwest Pennsylvania, has its own zone. Basically, like it's broken up in six ways, kind of like in a cardinal direction, if you can imagine that. And um, each zone gets, um, I believe, six to 12 permits to start. And then once the program's up and running, that's when they'll start allowing more people to get more permits and things like that nature. As soon as the legislation gets like rewritten or they start adding more laws to it, I could see it growing a lot larger. But just to start between 6 and 12 for each zone, yeah, there, there should be a good bit of starting off. You know, There should be at least 35 to around 70 just to start um, whenever uh, early 2018 comes. Has there been any talk about what the cost of cannabis will end up being there in your state? Have you heard anything about that? That has not been released yet. I do know that there will not be a sales tax on it, kind of very similarly to how uh, California was run for a long time. So um, that's good news. But no, they have not said how much uh, the topicals, tinctures, pills, or oils will cost. So that's very interesting. I'm in Colorado, and we use a pretty massive sales tax structure. Cannabis is taxed, and then it's taxed again, and then it's taxed again. And it's filled our coffers here to be able to do drug treatment programs, offer scholarships to students, helping out schools. So is there not that component to Pennsylvania's medical cannabis system? Yeah, there is that component, actually. But it's, um, I mean, as far as the tax goes, it's not as stringent as Colorado is. But, yes, there's a lot of limitations. From what I heard, they're going to start a uh, registry that if you're a medical patient, you essentially give your Second Amendment rights up to where you're not going to be even able to own a firearm. So there is definitely some issues that came from the bill that Mr. Uh, Governor Tom Wolf signed. So a lot of this is a lot of kinks and quirks that they got to get worked out. But um, just getting it started is just making so much more people happy, and it's, it's boosting the morale of citizens of Pennsylvania. The majority of people here, they want it. And medical, I mean, it's very hard to argue with someone if they're getting therapeutic effects from a plant. I mean, that's just, there's a lot bigger molehills to climb, you know. 
good point. And, you know, it's very interesting you bringing up the Second Amendment. That's been a big deal with cannabis. And I know people who've been charged for cannabis cultivation or possession in the past, and they had a weapon, and that really ramped up the charge, which I find to be interesting because you tend to be of a more sound mind ingesting cannabis than you do ingesting alcohol. So I can go ahead and drink as much whiskey as I want and be a gun owner, but I can be a consumer of cannabis, and now I have a problem owning a firearm. It's a strange issue that I think in the future will get worked out to some degree, but it's a strange quirk. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely hurtful. Just wanting to be compassionate to help people and society labels you as a villain. You know, it's very, very troubling that the federal government demonizes us. And it's not very fair because, like you say, you can go drink a case of beer and, you know, you go shoot off your gun. No one's going to say anything. You can go pop hydrocodone or whatever the crap that these guys sell to these pharmaceuticals these days, and you can have a gun. Everyone knows that no one's ever died directly from cannabis use, so I don't know what the cause is, is a, you know, why you get stripped of your constitutional amendment rights. I mean, it's just it's mind-boggling, and it's an illogical argument on the side of the, uh, the government. You're another one of these stories, um, and I know very similar to mine, where a cannabis is the reason why I stayed in school and completed as much schooling as I did. And to some people, that seems to be very strange. But uh, it's really nice to hear from other people who have experienced that same sort of thing. And I also experienced a traumatic brain injury. Mine was from skiing. Um, and I found oh, cannabis wow. to be incredibly helpful in my recovery from that. And also in terms of weaning off some of the pharmaceutical that I had been put on from that. So you and I have uh, come from a similar background into how cannabis helps us, and I know that we're far from alone. Yeah, yeah, and now that more people are talking about it, uh, we have people like you and myself coming out of the woodwork and dialogue, and, you know, we can work on the more serious issues, such as, like, the opioid crisis or the economy, you know, things of that nature. I mean, life shouldn't be this hard. The economy, speaking of the economy, that's something that cannabis really helps and spurs. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, we've seen that here in Colorado. Our unemployment rate is minuscule. <laughs> there's there's so many jobs, and to be involved with the cannabis industry, you don't even necessarily have to work directly in the cannabis industry. Heck, we have helped locksmiths, security people, builders, you know, anybody in the construction industry, um, you name it. There's so many things. It's amazing, and uh, it's also increased the price of housing, which can be good and bad, but I'm really happy to see other states legalizing because Colorado had been one of the destinations of so many people, whether it was coming here to be able to freely use cannabis without fear of prosecution or to work in the industry. And I'm glad that so many other states are coming on board and there's not just, you know, a few states where you'll need to go to do this. It keeps spreading and spreading. And I hope that continues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the major goal. You know, we're just trying to normalize it. We're trying to get to a point where people don't have to be in fear of their lives the entire time. And I, I think we'll get there soon. I know a lot of the people that I did meet at Amsterdam, they were um, they were really pessimistic about things with the government's feelings and things like that. 
Like, uh, I don't know if you've seen, Senator Rand Paul actually just drafted a bill to legalize industrial hemp. So it does seem that Congress is starting to look at the cannabis sativa L plant. So uh, maybe, just maybe, the tide will start to turn and we can get a bipartisan deal done and can get off the Schedule 1 list and things of that nature. And um, we can start doing medical research and start working on some of these tough issues that I do believe cannabis will be able to help solve. Well said, Alex. Well said. Thank you very much, Alex Soria. If you'd like to check us out on Instagram, it's The Cannabis Corner Show. And at Twitter, it's at the cannabis pod. Also, our website is thecannabiscorner.net. That is thecannabiscorner.net. Please write us if you're interested in advertising. We'd love to hear about your company. We'll see you next time on The Cannabis Corner.